is we are focusing on being devoted to the essentials so that we can give birth to revival families. Amen. How many revival families do we have in here? Just raise your hand if you want to be one. That's, that's, that's all it is. It's like, wait, is that something? Did they do something last Sunday? I don't know. <laughs> you're a revival family, and you're a revival family, and you're a revival family. I'll get my Oprah Winfrey on. Come on, and you're a revival family, and you're a Anyone could be a revival family. It's simply being full of the Holy Spirit. That's all it is. It's being full of the Holy Spirit and releasing it to the world you are a part of. Not boring religious families. That's no fun. It's revival families. Families full of the power of God, full of the life of God, full of the Holy Spirit, who are going out and they're demonstrating the goodness and the love of God. But the way we get there is by devoting ourselves to the essentials. We are looking at a picture in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that says they were devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And because they were full of the Holy Spirit, their devotion was on high. Super high. If you're dry and you're not devoted, it's not because we need to try harder. It's because you're empty. You're not staying filled up with the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to preach that, but it's true. And because we're full of the Holy Spirit, we live devoted, highly, highly, highly devoted. Not bored, not do I have to's. Oh, it's Sunday. I don't want to feel bad about myself. I got better go to church. Guilt is no fun. It's misery. Full of the Holy Spirit, fun. Joy in the Holy Ghost, right? And that the other verse about fun and God and Jesus and Holy Spirit. Joy in the whole. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So you've got to get filled up. Every single day. Today, you got to say, I need filled again, God. Yesterday, you had to say it. And the day before, you had to say it because it doesn't count. It's a start over. Like we leak out this stuff. So we are devoting ourselves to the essentials. And when God, when God gave birth to his supernatural family, he, he built it on these four pillars that we're talking about. This, this visible, and, and we see these four pillars like, all throughout your Bible, if you will just put those lens on and think about teaching and prayer and fellowship and the breaking the bread, if you will read your New Testament, you will see that stuff show up all the time. That's how we become a healthy, healthy family. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, all throughout the New Testament, we see devotion to teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and to breaking of bread. Which includes what we just did today. It includes the Lord's table. And so, as we look, continue looking at these first followers of Christ and, and their spirit-filled devotion to these essentials, I want us to take 
these photographs. That's what we're looking at. It's in word, but it's like a picture. And I want to take these photographs of this supernatural family that we see in our Bible. And I want you to overlay that picture over your family. Your family at home and this family in this room. I want you to overlay it. You know, in the world of counterfeit currency, the best and the most prevalent method of spotting a fake is not studying time, taking time studying a counterfeit. The number one way people are trained in spotting fake currency is by studying and handling the original. It's the real thing. Federal agents, when they're trained to do this, they don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they have mastered the look of it, the feel of it, the real thing. Then when they see a bogus bill, they recognize it right away. What we have in our hands On your screen, on your laptop, some of you may even have paper Bibles. (laughs) Who's got a paper Bible today? Wow, that's awesome. Hallelujah. There's something about that paper Bible. What we have in print, whether it's digital or analog, is the Holy Bible. And it is the most perfect original of what God intends his family to look like. So we must compare the original to our copy. And only through, the, through studying these pictures in the word of God will we be able to determine if what we have in our homes, your home, my home, and what we have here as a church, only by that will we know do we have an original. An actual representation of the original, authentic family of God. And guess what? Wherever we discover a counterfeit, we've got to immediately get rid of it. But I've had this one for a long time. It's the weirdest $3 bill I've ever had. I know, and it's worthless. (laughs) It's worthless. But it says three. I know. I don't know where you found that. (laughs) We have to destroy it. We've got to get rid of it and institute the original. So today, I want to start looking through these four essentials. And specifically, I want to start with the breaking of bread. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I shared... That another way to say devoted was continually or continued steadfastly or steadfastly. So when we read that the first family of God was devoted, we understand that they were continually devoting themselves to these four essentials. And we've already talked about how they got devoted and how they stay devoted. It was because they were full of the Holy Spirit. Everyone say full Full. of the Holy Spirit. 
Now let's say it again. Full of the Holy Spirit. And they stayed full. The first family of God was continuously devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, I want us to pay attention to a, a little, little word in that sentence. It's the word the. In the original Greek language of breaking of bread, it has this definite article just before it. Now, what that definite article does is it creates this special status, right? If I said, uh, go get a book, well, you could just get any book you wanted, right? But I always said, go get the book. Heck, we even know that that's referring to the Bible, right? Go get the book. Go get the pencil that I use. Go get the. When we use the, it gives us very specific and special. What is this he's talking about? And so that's in the original Greek. So if we added emphasis, it would, uh, we would say that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. And that means that we are talking about a very specific kind of breaking of bread. We are talking about the Lord's Supper. Sharing in the Lord's Supper is the breaking of bread. And it refers to taking the bread and at that time the wine that was served at the Last Supper with the disciples. And they celebrated in remembrance of Jesus. And it was patterned after the Last Supper, which Jesus had eaten with his disciples before his death. And it's important to know that, that this breaking of bread, it regularly had a meal tied to it. That means they all came together and they ate a meal and then they had communion. And we know that because it's mentioned in verse 46. It says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. We see in that verse that this first family of God, they met together how often? What's it say? The first two words. How often did they meet? Every day. This first family of God met together every day. They celebrated the Lord's Supper, and they ate a meal. Now, when they celebrated the breaking of bread, again, it was this meal, and it was communion. And we know that, again, it's in, emphasized in Jude. Because Jude talks about the breaking of bread. When he calls it, it says, these, uh, these hidden reefs are at your love feast. And that word love feast is this term that they gave for this time that they would come together and eat this meal and have a great time together. And so when the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, they really devoted themselves to it. You see, this wasn't just a, and, and you know, Alex made some great points, this isn't, this wasn't just a typical communion service where, you know, we all come down the center aisle and, we, you know, we come and we get our chiclet sized piece of wafer and our thimble of grape juice and 
We try not to spill it before they make us drink it, you know. It, it, it wasn't like that. When they got together, and when they were devoted to this, it was, they, were, they were retelling the story. In fact, they were practically reenacting this special meal, this last supper that the disciples had with Jesus. See, this practice of the Lord's Supper, it was this very holy, this awe-inspiring uh, time together. I mean, imagine what it would be like. I mean, imagine your connect group gets together to have a meal. But tonight, maybe Peter pops in. Or... Thomas, or maybe tonight John is going to come in and, and he's going to tell the story from a first person perspective. As one who was in the room with Jesus and the other disciples. I mean, imagine John telling you about how the room was filled with laughter and festivity as they were celebrating the Passover meal. You know, the Passover meal, it was this time where they would remember how God had delivered their people from the grips of slavery in Egypt. And they're, they're remembering that deliverance from slavery. I mean, imagine being in the room and, and maybe the disciples are still talking about how just a couple of days ago, when we came in with Jesus, that the whole city welcomed him with palm branches. And they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. And then imagine maybe that John talks about how things in the room shifted. When Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Take it and eat it. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Imagine you're in your, your small group and John's right there and maybe he tells us about how Jesus, then he takes off his outer clothing and he puts a towel around his waist begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Heck, maybe that night when they're, they're remembering the Lord, maybe John put a towel around himself. And he washes the feet of his connect group, his own family, because they're reliving this moment. And maybe John tells them the story of how they went on to the Garden of Gethsemane and they prayed. And guards came and arrested Jesus. And maybe John tells of how he watched Jesus be beaten and tortured. 
They mocked him. And how he watched him taken to Pontius Pilate and where he received the death penalty. And maybe John talks to the, to the home and he says, talks about watching Jesus march up the hill to Golgotha where he has to watch his most favorite person in the world have nails put into his hands and feet. Maybe John tells how he watched Jesus die this slow and agonizing death. And how that maybe when he, he watched Jesus trying to breathe and finally he breathed his last and he watched him slump over how he realized that maybe their hopes had died that day. Maybe John, he tells the story about how they took him to the tomb and a large stone was placed over the entrance and no one could get in or out. Maybe John says how three days later some women who had went to visit the tomb came running back saying that Jesus was alive and, and then maybe John's like, I couldn't believe it and, and me and Peter, we raced to get to the tomb but I got there first. And how they looked in and they saw it was empty like the, the women said. But they still did not even understand that Jesus had, had raised from the dead yet. And so they went back home going, I don't know what's going on. Then maybe John tells everyone in the home that, that later that same night that when they were all home and the doors were all locked and they locked the windows because they were scared out of their minds that they were going to be next. And all of a sudden, Jesus just appears in the room. Maybe John shares that Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to be given. And maybe John's telling them we were supposed to wait until the Holy Spirit came. And when the Holy Spirit came, that's when all of you joined the And John maybe finishes by saying, Jesus did this all for us. Jesus did all of this for us and that we must never forget what our Lord has done. That's why Jesus commanded us to remember him in this way. Through the breaking of bread and sharing the cup, See, I, I believe that this is, this is how they probably remembered the Lord. They told the story. They, they lived out the meal right there, just like they were, just as if they were there with Jesus. Think about it. I mean, think about it from... From the time that Jesus was crucified, dead, and risen to the day that the Holy Spirit had fallen on the disciples, we're only like 50 or 60 days from that moment. That's how, I mean, we're barely two months away from this cataclysmic event that changed everything and that 3,000 people were at it. 
I mean, it had barely been two months that they were, now they're devoting themselves to this remembering of the Lord and what He'd done for us. Even living so close, they were like, we cannot forget this. We cannot forget this. We've got to do this every day. We never want to forget what Jesus did. How much more important is that for us? Unfortunately, this wasn't the case for some other people that we're going to read about in the Bible. Alex hit it really good. It's the Corinthian church. There was a problem there, many problems. Paul had to address it. He said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, he says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry and another's getting drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What am I going to say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, to give us some context here, it has been about 27 years between Acts 2.42 and when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. 27 years. That's, that's f- five years longer than our church has existed. New Covenant Worship Center. That's not a long time. See, when the Lord's Supper was celebrated in the early church, again, it included this meal, this feast, this fellowship meal, and it was followed by the celebration of communion. And at the fellowship meal in this church in Corinth, we see that people brought food to share. Everyone brought, you know, it was a potluck. Everybody brings something. Well, in this day, the rich people of the community were bringing most of the food, the best food, more than the poor were. And so part of the problem that Paul's talking about is that instead of sharing what they brought equally with everyone, Paul had heard that the rich were taking their, you know, really nice dishes and they were kind of sitting off and they were just eating their really nice food by themselves. While the poor people who were, had joined the family couldn't bring anything and so they, they ate little or nothing. And then when the people ate and they, they ate and they drank excessively without waiting for anybody else, which also, again, caused hunger in other people. So Paul's saying, listen, there is very little sharing and there is very little caring going on in your communion service. Therefore, Paul said, 
that they were not doing a good job of preparing themselves for the Lord's table. But that they were, all you're doing, he said, is you're just merely satisfying your hunger, just like it was any normal meal, any ordinary meal, just like you're going through the drive through at McDonald's. You, you, you're treating this thing with contempt. This love, this love feast was supposed to be special. It was supposed to be special. But it did not demonstrate the unity and the love that should characterize the church. And it was no way to prepare for communion. So with the Corinthians partaking in the Lord's Supper, communion, while some of the church members were hungry and others had gotten drunk, they were making a mockery of what was to be a holy and a unifying time for the entire family of God. And so Paul was condemning these actions, and he reminded the church of the real purpose of the Lord's Supper. The purpose was to remember what Jesus had done. If we don't continuously devote ourselves to the story of the sacrifice of Jesus, we forget or we lightly esteem what Christ has done. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about not forgetting. The Bible has a lot to say about us not forgetting what the Lord has done for us. And let me just share just a couple of some of the big problems that happen when we forget what the Lord has done. There's a gal, her name's Lori Stewart, and she wrote an article. It's called The Problem of Forgetting. And if you want to look it up, it's on cbn.com. But she writes in that article that forgetting leads to unbelief. And unbelief leads to rebellion. Let me say that again. Because this is a big point we need to remember. Forgetting leads to unbelief. Unbelief leads to rebellion. And she says, she reminds us in the article about the children of Israel. She says that even though the children of Israel were delivered out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and they had just they had just witnessed these 10 miraculous plagues that came upon Egypt. She says that, she reminds us that even though they had just come out of that, they forgot. She points us to Psalm 106, verse 7. She says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. It's right there. They forgot. They got into unbelief, and they rebelled. Now, immediately following the Red Sea miracle, 
I mean, again, I don't know how this happens, but I'm trying not to be too judgy, but they, they came out of the Red Sea, and guess what? They grumbled and were freaked out because they had no clean water. I mean, repeatedly, these poor... Whoa, thank you, Chad. <laughs> they were stuck on stupid. <laughs> stuck on stupid. Repeatedly, they forgot the miracles that God had done for them. They grumbled. They wanted to turn back. Let, let's go back to slavery. Demanded to have a new leader. We don't know about this guy Moses. He's, you know, I mean, they... They just kept forgetting, and forgetting leads to unbelief, and unbelief will lead us to rebellion. Now, the second problem of forgetting is that forgetting makes us do stupid things. Thank you. Stuck on stupid. Forgetting makes us do stupid things. So, so here we've got the people of Israel again. They're, out, they're at um, Mount Sinai. And Moses is up on the mountain 40 days talking to God, getting ready to bring down the Ten Commandments. And guess what? They got tired of waiting. I'm bored. Where is this guy? They got tired of waiting. And so they do this super, 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 super stupid thing. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating ox. I mean, it tells us right in the Word of God. Verse 20, it says, They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. How quickly the people forgot what God had done. Forgetting causes us to get impatient. Forgetting causes us to get impatient and not wait on God's direction. Again, that's what verse 13 in the same, same chapter of 106, it says, but they soon forgot his works. And what happened? They did not wait for his counsel. Impatient people do stupid things. Let's say that together. Impatient people do stupid things. Now let's say it with gusto. Impatient people do stupid things. Pretend like you're saying it and that stupid person sitting next to you so they can really hear you. Impatient people do stupid things. Okay. Yeah. See, when we forget what the Lord has done, that is truly being stuck on stupid. And listen, everyone has a need to remember what God has done. Let's say that together. One, two, three. Everyone has a need to remember what God has done. All of us. Every single one of us. The Lord's table, the breaking of bread, fulfills the need to remember what Jesus has done. Now, in the Old Testament, the way they did this is they set up this thing called memorial stones. 
We can read about this in Genesis 28, verse 16. It says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had used as a pillow. He took the stone that he had put his head on and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first, just so we know geographically what we're talking about. God had just appeared to Jacob in a dream. And the next morning, Jacob, he wakes up and he's, this encounter is, I have to remember it. I have to remember what happened. I've got to, I cannot forget this. And so he set up this memorial stone to serve as a reminder of what had taken place that night. Because every time he walked by this place, he wanted to remember. This was where God met me. This is where I wrestled him. This is where I saw angels up and down on a ladder. This is where it happened. And it was so important to him that 30 years later, he does it all over again. He repeats this solemn act. It says, it tells us in Genesis 35, this is 30 years later. And again, it says, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, the pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This isn't just redundancy. Oh, did you forget what happened? No, this is, he did it again. In the New Testament, Jesus helped solve our problem of forgetting by calling us to celebrate the Lord's Supper through the breaking of bread. And, and here's again why. We have a forgetting problem. We have a forgetting problem, but here's the hope. Jesus Christ has a solution. He said, remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. God calls us to be continuously devoted to the breaking of bread. And when a spirit-fueled devotion to breaking bread happens continuously, the result is our supernatural family grows. God adds new babies to us. Day after day after day. And when we continuously remember what Jesus has done, guess what happens? It leaks. We tell the whole world about it. See, the early church, they had this meal, and then they celebrated the Lord's Supper. So, as we overlay the picture of this supernatural family in Acts over our own families, 
I want to ask this question. Is your family devoted to breaking bread? Is your connect group continuously devoted to remembering what Jesus has done through the act of sharing your meal? You know, Alex confessed that he hadn't done a good job. I'm right with him. I have to say, I have never once served my family communion. Not one time. It's the church's job to do that, right? No, it's not. That's not the picture we see. This is a part of it, but this is not the picture. And I have to say, I have never served my family communion. But as I focus on being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I want to devote myself to the breaking of bread with my family with some of your families. We have a forgetting problem. Jesus has a remembering solution. He calls us to be devoted to the Lord's table, to the Lord's supper. And so I want to make this request. I want to request that you, along with me, would mold your family. That you would mold your family, your small group. That you would conform it to the pattern of this supernatural family that we read in Acts 2.42. Will you serve your family communion And remember what the Lord has done. Will you eat a meal with family and friends and then celebrate the Lord's table by remembering what Jesus has done for each and every one of you? We must conform our families and our connect groups to this kind of spirit-fueled devotion. Devotion to the breaking of bread. Now, this morning, as we finish, because I'm done making my point, but I want to do some more activation this morning. Um, and I know some of you may be wondering um, if this is going to be a pattern. The answer is yes. It is. Um, but the reason why I feel like we need to do this um, for me personally is I felt like the Lord told me that I needed to press into my apostolic gift more and my anointing and so 
activating spiritual gifts is one of the ways I feel like the Lord's wanting me to step out and to really push into this. Um, so, so he wants me to do that. I think he wants us to be a more gifted house. Do you believe that? I mean, they're free gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us as he chooses, as he determines at the moment he wants us to have them. But today I feel like I feel really led to activate the gift of miracles. And just so you understand it a little bit, I'm not going to do a whole teaching, but I am going to just give you a quick understanding of it. The gift of miracles works um, in creation a, a lot. That's what we see in the Word. Um, and it works by overriding or intervening uh, in the ordinary course of nature. And so here's some examples if you're looking for it. Uh, Aaron, Moses' right-hand man, he had a staff, and um, he took it before the Lord to see who was supposed to be the, the guy. And this dead piece of wood um, overnight blossomed, and it grew almonds. That's a miracle. Um, at the Red Sea, when the waters were parted, guess what? That's a miracle. Balaam's donkey that he was riding and beating and talking to him in a way you could understand. That's a miracle. <laughs> Elijah and Elisha both worked miracles. And one that I think is very appropriate for any of us is when the widow had the one little little bitty jar of oil and he told her to go get a bunch of pots from as many people as you know and fill them all up. And that one little pot filled up gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons. That's a miracle. When Jesus had just preached to 5,000 people and they're starving because they didn't want to leave. He said, feed them, it's time. And they're like, oh yeah, there's a little, one basket of fish and a bread and there's 5,000 people here. Let's break it. Let's give thanks and feed them. And out of that tiny lunch, 5,000 people and their families ate. That's a miracle. Jesus turning water into wine, that's a miracle. Jesus walking on water, that's a miracle. Those are all demonstrations of the working of miracles. And it tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that that is a gift we can have.